This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This is the best app I have seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. Crimped has dozens of workouts crafted by world-class climbers and coaches that focus on all of the different facets of climbing performance and training, including workouts to guide your outdoor climbing. I just did a really fun collaboration with the guys at Crimped, and now all of you can try my three favorite outdoor bouldering workouts right there in the Crimped app. We've got one called Steven's Outdoor Bouldering Warm-Up, which is my go-to warm-up on a bouldering day. We've got Steven's Outdoor Limit Bouldering, which will guide you through my approach to projecting hard boulders. And finally, we've got Steven's Outdoor Strength Zone Bouldering, which will guide you through a strength-focused bouldering session. I've used that one a lot in Waco tanks over the past few years with great results. And it's a great format for sending some of those second-tier boulders and building strength out there on the rock. Check out the Crimped app at crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com to get started and download the Crimped app for free. And type in Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, into the search bar in the app to try my go-to outdoor workouts. That's crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the app store. It's totally free to try. Type Steven in the search and have fun out there on the boulders. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and I'm recording this intro in Switzerland. This is my first podcast intro that I've recorded here. I have been here for about a week. I'm sitting outside on the deck right now, enjoying one of the first sunny days that we've had. It's been a very rainy trip here so far. You can probably hear the birds in the background and now someone hammering a fence. <laughs> Um, but it's so much fun. I'm so happy to be here and I'm going to be continuing to put out podcasts over the course of my trip. I'm here for six weeks and then I'm going to Rocklands, South Africa. And the next six or so episodes that I'll be publishing on the podcast are episodes that I recorded before I left. So some of these were recorded a couple months ago up through the month of April. So if it seems like I'm time traveling and bouncing all over the place, that explains that. All right, let's get to today's episode. My guests today, there are two of them, are Carly Rager. She's been on the podcast before, back in episode 124. Carly is a former engineer. She's got a master's in engineering and left that world behind to start her own coaching business and is now a professional climbing coach. And Casey Elliott is my second guest. Casey is also a very experienced climber and now coaches with Carly. And he also is an engineer and just finished his master's in engineering and doesn't know what he's going to do with it yet. So as all of you know, I'm a former engineer. So we have three engineers in one podcast. And that's very fitting because today we are geeking out on the data. These two, Carly and Casey, did a multivariate statistical analysis on the different factors that affect our climbing performance. Do you hear that? Someone's banging on the fence again. Anyway, what does that mean? Well, we get into what a multivariate statistical analysis is in a lot of detail and explain it in the episode. So I'm not going to talk about it too much here, but basically they took a bunch of factors and they wanted to understand which of these factors affect how hard we can climb? Do things like weight, height, or ape index, or even age, do those affect how hard we can potentially climb? What about some of the physical components? How does finger strength, for instance, stack up against how many pull-ups you can do or how many days you've spent climbing outside in your life? We dig into all of that in great detail in this episode, and there's some really great takeaways. So I really hope you guys enjoy this one. 
And if you do find it interesting, I recorded an add-on conversation with these two about two months after our first conversation. We recorded this first one back in early March, and we recorded like a 20-minute add-on because they had met with a professional statistician and learned a couple new things in the two months after our first interview. So we recorded that one in early May. And yeah, it's 20 minutes long and I'm gonna tack that onto the end of my episode for patrons. So if you are a patron, be sure to keep listening after the music and you can hear us talk for about 20 more minutes and hear Carly and Casey share a couple more things that they learned about all of these data. Quick shout out today to one of my new patrons. This one's a little bit overdue, but I wanna give a shout out to Brant Mikolas. Brant is the latest patron who has signed up for the Big Giver tier, which is giving $30 per month to the Nugget Climbing Podcast, which is just amazing. Thank you so much to Brant. And of course, most of that money is going to a couple nonprofits that we are partnered with here at the Nugget. So the first one is Climbing for Change, which is Kai Leitner's nonprofit. Kai's been on the podcast. And the other one is Sacred Rock, which was started by Ron Kalk and Katie Lambert. And both of them have been on the podcast as well, and they're doing really cool stuff. So yeah, huge thank you to Brant. If you want to learn more about how to become a big giver or a patron at any other tier, you can learn all the things at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. Also, I'm going to be doing short audio trip update episodes for my patrons who support for $10 per month or more. So if you want to hear more about my climbing and how the trip is going, they'll probably be 10 or 15 minute episodes. I'll try to put them out at least every other week and share a few updates over the course of the trip. So you can learn more and sign up for that at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. Okay, that's enough of me rambling. Let's dive in. Please enjoy this very geeky and very fun conversation with Carly Rager and Casey Elliott. Hey. Hi, Carly. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just got back from climbing a little bit ago. Nice. Climbing outside or climbing inside? Outside. I'm down in El Salto right now. Nice. Hell yeah. yeah. That looks amazing. It's pretty special. It's a special spot for me, for sure. Lots of just like really, really good vibes down here for sure. Like lots of support. Everybody's psyched. There's always like a small community down here. So there's always like 10 or 12 of us. So we just get mm. to know people and it's sweet. Hell yeah. That's awesome. How long you been there for this season? Oh, I got here just a little over a month ago. Okay. So yeah, about a month, but I leave on Monday. Coming to the end. Mm-hmm. Do you Coming have a the end. project you're trying to wrap up or... I do. Yeah. It's been a little bit of a interesting one in that. Yeah. I wanted to go after like 13 C slash D 13 plus or something in that realm. Um, and so kind of did a lot of volume the first week and did some 12 D 13 nights pretty quick. But then as I was kind of projecting, I had got, got the news that my grandma passed away. So it's mm. been a little bit of a, you know, like kind of, kind of an interesting experience, but i been doing a lot better last few days so i got on it again today and got got a really really big link it's like this very resistance route it's like it's just long and really run out and it's just how long can you keep doing 12 plus after that crux (laughs) so yeah 
it's it's good. It's gotcha. Good. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your grandmother. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's hard. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough being away, and you know, when it was come in, and I went back a lot this year to spend time with her. So, you know, I was glad that I did that and got to spend the time with her while she was here. Um, but it's always still hard. It always yeah. still hits. Yeah, totally. Uh, where are you sitting right now, Carly? Uh, I'm in our cabin. Okay. Yeah, at Rock Camp, Rock Camp in uh, El Salto. So there's like a couple of campgrounds, but this one's kind of the the OG campground since people stopped camping behind uh, Donia Kikas, which is the one of the stores here. Okay. Um. So Carlos owns and runs Rock Camp, and super quiet right now, super chill. But we just have a cabin here and just been been doing all the same stuff that I do at home, but down here. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Where are you at? I am, uh, <laughs> I'm in a parking lot. What am I in front of? I don't even know. I'm in front of some building in a parking, a parking nice. lot in St. George. Um, nice. I'm in St. George. That's the short answer. But the, mm -hmm. I don't know why the cell phone service is really weird here. Like, <laughs> you know, I was, I have been climbing at the gym. I've been training at the gym, which is like two blocks away from at now. And I just don't get good enough service at the gym to do this. But mm -hmm. in this random parking lot two blocks away, it's fine. So I don't know. Here, here, this is my spot. I just park here and have my microphone and people walk by and look at me weird. No, I'm kidding. My curtains are closed. But yeah, this is my life. Just yeah. <laughs> podcasting yeah. from uh, strip mall parking lots. Um, mm -hmm. Casey, hi. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Can we turn you up a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Let's, Let's see if we see. can get some more volume. That any better? Yeah, that's better. Maybe a yeah. touch more, touch more. Okay. Well, it sounds like that's maybe as high as this microphone goes. Okay. Um, is that going to be okay? Yeah, Just that'll work. That'll work for sure. Enunciate. <laughs> there we go. Where are you coming from? You, you're you in a bona fide recording studio right now? I know, right? Check it out. I know. It's kind of funny. Um, I'm doing my master's right now at University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, and I'm talking to two engineers who quit their master's to go climbing. <laughs> where <laughs> I climbed and coached for five years and then came back to get a master's. So I'm like, well, you know, there's an audio recording booth at the at the university. So that'd be kind of cool to use it for this. So, Sweet. Yeah. There we yeah. go. Yeah, I think we have a... I mean, I only did a bachelor's. I did not start a master's. I had no... I just wanted to be done with school by the time I finished a bachelor's. But I think we are... I think we studied a very similar thing. Or I think you're studying uh, something very similar to what I got my degree in, which was like material science... Uh, my degree was technically plastics engineering technology, but it was a lot of like material science, composites, polymer science, things like that. Is that what you're doing? Oh. Something like that? Yeah, really close. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. did my undergrad in metallurgical engineering, so like just material science and metals specifically. And then I actually am working for my same advisor that I did a bunch of research with in my undergrad. She moved from Salt Lake to Reno, and I'm doing material science officially, so the whole the whole gambit um but we're working specifically with nuclear materials sort of on like the waste recovery side and making sure that we have materials that are suitable to you know keep radioactive waste away from the environment for millions of years which is kind of kind of fun that's important that's cool yeah. do yeah. you do you uh do you hope to have a career doing that or do you hope that the coaching thing takes off and allows you to oh, just man. be a coach full time okay i just asked yeah. you a very existential question he's putting <laughs> his hands on his face <laughs> yeah it's a tough one um <laughs> yeah i mean after my undergrad i you know worked in the climbing industry for five years and 
just kind of burned out a little bit and lost a little bit of my passion for climbing when you're mixing the business and pleasure mm -hmm. sometimes. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, I'd really love to be able to make some money and buy a house or something and have kind of the stability. And here I am a year and a half in and I am desperately missing traveling and climbing all the time. And, you know, especially Carly is like a little devil on my shoulder being like, <laughs> you should just come coach and, you know, don't go do engineering. We're going to build this cool thing. Get after it. So you could be uh, in Mexico right now, sport climbing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my plan right now, I think, is to keep Reno as a home base. I really like it out here, but uh, work with Carly for uh, the foreseeable future afterwards. Still probably going to apply to some some engineering jobs and see if one is just like way too good to say no to. Mm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I miss coaching. I miss the people. I miss getting to have the have the time. What would make an engineering job way too good to say no to? Would it be the financial incentive? Would it be the kind of work you would get to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that as long as there's a good team and I enjoy who I'm working with and it challenges my brain, I don't know that I care what I work in that much. More so, I would care about having probably a remote job and having some flexibility with it. I think is like kind of the biggest thing, which is tough in material science. It's a very mm. hands-on field, as I'm sure you know. Everyone's I like, do know, yeah. Yeah, you should go grind 80 hours a week at Panasonic, you know, or like work in this lab, in this factory, or do something like that, right? Um, but, you know, uh, there's there's cool things out there. I definitely know it can happen and don't necessarily even need to work in material science specifically. I think that's like one of the cool things about college is it proves, well... Elon Musk would probably agree with or disagree with this, but it proves you have a brain, is what I was going to say. He'd probably say it proves you can do your chores. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, little column A, little column B, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, that'd probably be my requirement. I'm like, I'd have to make more than I work made coaching with like a good amount of flexibility, which I think uh, could go both ways. Because yeah. you're too good at too many things. <laughs> He's too good at too many things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> Feel so sorry for him. What a problem yeah. to have. All, Tiny, all the options. Tiny yeah. violin. No, I, yeah, I, I relate to all that. I mean, it's interesting. I think, uh, I'm I'm still really grateful that I got an engineering degree. I feel like the main thing, I feel like it really did set me up to do this, honestly, which might sound weird to people listening that, you know, think I just have conversations and put them on the internet, but there's there's a lot of problem solving, a lot of critical thinking, a lot of kind of breaking th things down into pieces and finding a fit, like systems is a huge thing for me, finding efficient systems um, for doing everything I do. That's the only way I can do it all myself, traveling and things. So yeah, there's so many ways to apply those base skills and that way of thinking that you've, that you've learned and really deeply integrated at this point. So yeah, you can do anything, anything you want to do. It, I, yeah. I can imagine, though, it would be hard to find an engineering degree that's remote, at least with that style. I, I never really tried. I've been doing this the whole time. Um, or I've been I've been doing this since before COVID. So I don't know what it's like to try to find an engineering job post-COVID when remote working has become a lot more normalized. But I think... I think if I was still at the company that I was at before, it would still be like a hard no on trying to do my job remotely if I pitched that. That's my suspicion, but. Yeah, I, and I think it probably, I'd probably have to do some sort of coding boot camps or have some other some other expertise in that, mm. you know. And, and there's always weird stuff out there too, just like technical writing or, you know, doing AutoCAD type stuff that you could maybe 
maybe find gig-based work or some other things like that. But I don't know. I got my engineering degree and then went and fucked off and climbed for five years. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'm not the best person to, <laughs> nice. to answer. We'll flip, we'll flip yeah. a coin at the end of this podcast interview. <laughs> yeah. We'll flip a coin. Great. I hope, yeah, I hope you're ready. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, Carly, I, uh, I've already done an episode with you. Um, so, you know, I'm assuming my listeners will know your story, but do you want to tell me more about where Project Direct is at now and, and how you got connected to Casey and what his role is in the, in the business yeah. and yeah, just where the coaching business is at at this point? Totally. Yeah. So, uh, we would have talked, it would have been in May, actually just May of last year. So, um, yeah, I kind of was at that point. It was actually in El Salto last year. And I was just kind of like, you know what? I think I'm maxed out on on athletes. You know what I mean? Like you kind of hit this point where even if you have the hours in the day, like the kind of coaching and, you know, phone conversations that I'm having and like talking to so many people where you hit a point where you're kind of like, I, if I were to take on anybody else, I wouldn't be able to do as good of a job as how I want to and what I know I can if I'm like fully giving 110% of my energy into these athletes. So I kind of hit that point and then was also like, but I, you know, unapologetically want Project Direct to go or to grow. And so the solution in bringing in um, a couple other coaches um, was what I was working with. And then I knew Casey and I also, and my thought was bringing other coaches that even have like a different expertise than me um so like in the ice climbing realm so one of my coaches patrick cook he's in the northeast and then casey um and pat is like a really really accomplished ice climber been ice climbing for 20 years lots of water ice sixes and first ascents and these things so instead of if somebody comes to me and they're like hey carly like i want to work my head game i'm primarily a winter climber you know and i've worked with people in that realm um being, being able to be like hey you know what Pat would be amazing at that. And he has so much more experience in that specific realm of climbing that he's going to know all those little odds and ends. And I have a lot more of that to bring. So um, bringing on different coaches, but bringing on coaches that are like slightly different in their expertise than what I personally pursue in my own climbing um, for, for people that want to work with Project Direct. And so Casey <clears throat> has tons and tons of coaching experience, obviously, and worked, worked for TCA and Coach Comp and all of the things. Um, obviously a lot of outdoor climbing in outdoor bouldering and track climbing room. Um, and so I just thought that was like a really rad combination. And both of them I knew prior to like starting to work with them. So um, that's how it's evolved. And then, so I just have these two other coaches that are, um, and we work together and we bounce ideas off of each other. And then also selfishly, it's so nice to have somebody to talk to mm about everything that is going on like i could just like you know hit up pat or casey and be like hey what do you guys think of this am i totally a looney tune right now or is this actually like a pretty cool idea or um get their input so that in that way it feels really good so i still have like my roster but um you know it caps out a little bit and then you know you know mentoring casey and pat on coaching and then also learning a lot from them so that's kind of where it sits right now Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, that sounds like a very complimentary collection of individuals. And I can really relate to that. Like, man, like doing the podcast, something that's always so helpful is if I'm hanging out with a friend and I'm working on an episode and I can just say like, hey, what do you think of this title of this episode? Like, it's all those little things, just the thousand decisions mm -hmm. and all the little things. It's not so much like the podcasting or the 
you know, producing or editing or whatever. It's just all the admin and little decisions mm -hmm. that can kind of overwhelm and exhaust you. And being able to outsource yeah. some of those little decisions is is super helpful. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, yeah, like, <clears throat> you know, I have my accounting hat, and my hat, customer service hat, management hat. Like I have a lot of hats that I wear on like a, on a daily basis. And just to like, yeah, just have somebody to be like, I don't know. Under the under the hat with me, you're like, hey guys, what's, like, what's going on here? And like, do you want to borrow uh, a hat? Here you go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, you can have mini feathers in it, but just wear this hat for like a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's like been it's been really cool, and and I think to some extent more fun for me too to just have some have 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 it not just feel like I'm so much out on an island, and just have some peers. Nice. Well, Casey, um, this is the first time you and I have ever talked. So I'm going to be meeting you as my audience is getting a chance to meet you. Tell me a little bit more about your climbing and coaching background. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I started climbing in high school. Uh, you know, a group of friends basically were like, oh, this looks pretty cool. We should get into it. And one of my friend's parents just gave us all their gear and they're like, go have fun back in Boise. And so we like romped to the local sport climbing crag and kind of like self-taught and had had a couple of scary experiences as one does when you don't have a legitimate mentor or you're not starting in the gym and moving, moving outside and stuff. But I think that that kind of approach definitely sparked my desire for adventure climbing more so than, you know, uh, like sport and sport and bouldering for the most part. But, uh, then I went to Salt Lake for college and started the competitive climbing team there with my friend Danny and Ben, uh, which was awesome because all of a sudden I just got like introduced to so many incredible mentors and fantastic climbers. And it was really cool. I mean, we won nationals one year. We won, uh, we got like third place one year. Uh, it was a little fair, unfair because the only spring semester that Nathaniel Coleman went to college, we got him on the team, you know? <laughs> uh, but we had so many, so many rock stars there who, you know, when you're the same age as someone, especially in college, I think that there's a way better like peer bonding and mentorship that goes on. Like everyone's on the same field in so many ways. Uh, so it's really cool to get introduced to, you know, competitive climbing in that way and uh, training a little bit more in that way. And then, also, so many incredible partners to go climb outside in Salt Lake, which obviously has become like the new the new mecca of climbing in in the U.S. Um, but then, yeah, after college, I took off and lived in my Honda Element for a while, and then a little Chevy Express, uh, and then built out another van. But just traveled around and climbed. I worked for Kylas for a little bit as their athlete manager and sales rep, and then built climbing walls for USA Climbing. Um, and then ended up working at the climbing Academy, which was a really, really cool experience, um, because I had never traveled, traveled internationally for climbing before that, uh, kind of was like, Oh, there's so much good stuff out West here. Like, why would I go to Europe to sport climb? And I wasn't that big of a sport climber, but, um, that was a really cool experience Did that for like two and a half years, got to, you know, really solidify my role as a mentor as well, especially when you're, you know, you're basically, raising and living with 20, 18 year old, 16 year old, 17 year old, like high school age kids who want to climb outside. And I mean, if anyone who's worked with high school age kids that like teaching them to climb is going to be like the smallest part of your journey with them. <laughs> sure. like, yeah. There's so many firsts that happen out there that like you are the go-to person for them to talk to about it. And 
uh, it was it was really cool to build that build that bond in it. I think that really helped me love coaching more because it wasn't just about watching somebody climb hard. It was also about seeing how it affected the rest of their life. Mm. Um, and so that was a really cool experience. Um, got to travel all over. And then, yeah, after that, I decided to go back to grad school and took uh, like eight months for myself to climb between then. And that's when I met Carly and got got linked up with Project Direct. Um, but yeah, mostly loved bouldering and trad climbing and have done a couple like first ascents, done a couple big walls, had some really good time. Kind of my bread and butter for the majority of my climbing career was trying to do like, you know, some like scarier head point trad climbing. Um, and yeah, doing some like R X stuff like that, that was just, you know, I think it challenged me in a different way. And, and for me, it was always my like cheat code to get into the flow. You know, I'm not a very good sport projector and bouldering hmm. happens so fast. I think that for me, it was like, oh, cool. I can just like rehearse this thing or get really excited about this thing. And then it would be like all in, I could focus and really execute, which, you know, it's hard to replace that feeling with anything else in hmm. life. Um, and yeah, I still definitely, definitely crave that. I'm a little, uh, less gung ho these days. It was, it was interesting, like working with the, the kids at the climbing Academy actually made me like much more risk adverse because like as head coach there, my job was to make sure that these kids tie in 2000 times throughout the course of the year and never once mess up. Right. And when you start looking at those odds as a parent or as a coach in those ways, I think it starts being like, oh man, yeah, like my personal risk management is like very low in comparison mm. to my risk management for these people. And it, it's definitely crept in a little bit. And I don't know if I just like turned 27 and my frontal lobe, lobe finally formed and I'm actually <laughs> like <laughs> not scared as much or like yeah. more scared or if it was the experience with those, with those kids. But, um, yeah, yeah. So that's like a decent little, little blurb there. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's cool. And, uh, it's, it's interesting. I feel like I haven't talk to too many people with that combination, like focus on bouldering, focus on trad climbing. It's typically bouldering in sport or sport in trad or trad in, you know, big wall trad, whatever. Um, but yeah, that it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, hard trad climbing ultimately comes down to boulder problems more often than not. So I think they do complement each other pretty well, but. Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially when you have like, yeah, hard sections to a hand jam or something, you're like, well, hand jam is pretty good most of the time. I like, definitely think that it complements it unless you're climbing an Indian Creek right. or you're doing like endurance corners. I would probably train on like granite bouldering to go, go climb granite cracks more than I would go sport climbing personally. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. I, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the projecting thing I'm reaching for my phone right now. I, um, randomly got a text from Mikey Schaefer earlier today <laughs> and he called you out. He said, heard your interview in Casey today. Ask him why he has never really projected anything. He really shies away from it. I was like, damn, throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah, yeah. Mikey, Mikey gotcha. Oh man. Um Yeah. Uh I was out skiing with Mikey. He's been kind of my main ski partner, uh, along with one of my roommates out here in, in Reno. Um a lot. And one day I was talking to him about dating and <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, he has had two very serious relationships in his life that have both been like 10, 15 years long, right? Um, which I think he's just I met two incredible people and was like, yeah, let's let's do it. Um, I've had many relationships in my life and they have not lasted very long. And he made that connection where he was saying like, 
you know, this is probably why I don't like projecting is you, you know, <laughs> get really excited about something. And then as, you know, maybe as soon as something seems like a red flag or something seems weird, like, you know, like, oh, it'll go try a different climb. I can maybe like send in a couple days. Um, and he was like, but the beauty about projecting is that like, you know, when you've been working on your project for months and months, you find all these like really beautiful little parts about your project that get you really excited that you wouldn't find if you'd only uh, tried to climb it 10 times. Wow. Um, and he's like, and that's how I feel about long-term relationships is that you have to keep looking for all those little things to keep you excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. That, was, that was quite a call out there. That was, <laughs> that was that's good. I, what a beautiful analogy. That's Next time I see Mikey, I'm going to give him the biggest <laughs> nucks ever. I'll be like, lols. That's oh, yeah, so... The sweetest man. That's so funny. I mean, you're also very similar to me, Casey. So that I'm just like, oh man, I didn't expect this to turn into like a, a therapy session. But um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go go home and chew on this. I'm already home in my van. But I guess later tonight I'll be thinking about that. Like, yeah. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Put away your climbing journal. Pull out the other one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. So. I think you two should do your next multivariate analysis on dating, on relationship success versus um, project duration, how long it takes people to project <laughs> roots. I want to know if there's actually a true connection here or if Mikey's just looking at like an N of two and <laughs> drawing some big yeah, conclusions. We, yeah. Casey, you can call Mikey right back out and be like, that's, that's just too, too small of a sample size. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Invalid. Yeah. How are we supposed to draw any conclusions, Mikey? Maybe maybe <laughs> we can reach out to the whatever that new climbing dating app is. They'll have all the data for us, you know. Is there a new climbing dating app? God, I don't know. I saw some a couple months ago that was like, oh, find your climbing partners on, I don't know, Climb XXX or something. <laughs> Climb XXX. <laughs> Catchy name. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there would be no women on that dating app. Just dudes. <laughs> no, literally. What's yeah. that? Really? Yeah. No women on that. Okay. Let's uh, let's dive into it, shall we? Let's dive into uh, today's topic. What was the goal with this whole project? So I have this PDF in front of me that kind of lays out the takeaways from this multivariate statistical analysis that you two did with a bunch of your clients to try to figure out, can we calculate the things or quantify the things and, and estimate how hard people should be climbing? Um, you know, there's a lot of assessments in climbing these days. So this is just kind of a take on that. But what was the goal of the project and what problem were you trying to solve or what question were you trying to find the answer to? Carly, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think largely, you know, we both have this kind of like math brain and this analytical brain and we, we hear a lot about um, statistics relative to max hangs or rated pull-ups or, you know, everybody has, you know, lots of elite climbers share like what they did and what was helpful for them. But when you're saying like, all right, finger strength matters, you know, then I want to know like how much does it matter? How does it much does it matter compared to max weighted pull up or how much does it matter compared to days outside climbing or days inside training? Like not just look, saying like, yes, it matters to some extent, but like trying to figure out how much it matters. Um, so 
kind of starting there, you know, I think was our, we were like, well, maybe there's some metric that's really like when you look at the uh, basic correlation of the metric to max sport or bouldering grade, maybe there's something that really pops out and we can be like this, you know, like here, here we got it, like really, really big thing, or at least get some amount of understanding in terms of ordering the importance that we put on these variables, um, on these metrics. And then, uh, you know, we started, so we started there, but we were trying to answer the question of like, as coaches, you know, we look at people's metrics, you know, and are we, are we weighting them all equally? Is that appropriate? And so with this really large data set that the power climbing company made public and shared with us, we were kind of like looking at trying to answer some of those questions for our own coaching and understanding. Um, And then from that, it kind of like led into this bigger multivariate model, which is basically saying if we have all of these variables and we have all of this information, like how much does each matter adding up to like a predicted um, predicted grade um, that you're climbing. And so that was, you know, just trying to answer the question of, yeah, how much, how much does a single metric matter? How much does it matter compared to other metrics? Is that different for bouldering and sport climbing and to what extent? That's awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. And then Casey, I'll give the next question to you. Help everybody listening understand what a multivariate statistical analysis is and how it works. Um, I'm an engineer. I did a bunch of statistics in college. So you're kind of speaking my language here, but I'm guessing this is, it sounds like a big scary thing to a lot of people listening who don't have that background. So yeah, what is a multivariate statistical analysis and how does it work? Yeah, so uh, kind of uh, to talk a little bit also about what Carly was saying and the point of the project to me was sort of to zoom out as much as we could. I think it's so easy to get into the weeds with what matters that the cool thing about multivariate analysis is we can input all of these variables and basically weight them against the success and see, you know, on this large scale what maybe matters versus trying to do what is single variable analysis, which is saying, okay, on my x-axis or my input, I'm going to say, how strong are my fingers? And on the output, I'm going to say, oh, V7, V8, V9, V10, and try to draw a correlation between the two. And you might see a positive correlation where if you have stronger fingers, you're likely to climb hard. You might see a negative correlation. Like if you do a bunch of push-ups, you're not likely to climb hard or something, right? Uh, but when we looked at all of these individual variables, compared against how hard someone climbed, none of them described this the, the trend very well. Basically, it could describe like 20% of the trend. So imagine you have your graph, you have your x-axis that says finger strength, your y-axis that says how hard do I climb, and you kind of have these dots just scattered all over, and you're looking at it, and you're like, yeah, like I can kind of see them increasing as I move to the right and up to sort of say like, Yeah, it appears as though if you have stronger fingers, you climb hard. But as engineers, we basically need to, or as data scientists, whatever, you basically need to have a high enough correlation between the two values to actually say there is a correlation. You have to be able to say like, okay, yeah, this corresponds to 85% of the data in order to say like, this isn't just random causation or random correlation, basically. Um, and that value that I'm going to probably mention a couple of times is called your R squared value. It basically describes how well is, does this trend line that I'm going to try to like draw between all the data, 
actually describe the data. And if your R squared value is 0.2, you might say that it describes 20% of the data. If it's 0.8, you could say it describes 80% of the data, which is, you know, uh, like dumbing it down a little bit. Uh, that's not like exactly precisely what it means, but I think for the purpose of this, it's like pretty okay to say that that's, that's what it means. And so if I were to publish this, if we were going to like publish this article, I would want all of my trend lines or all of my relation relationships to basically be 0.8, 0.9, like pretty high, right? Or 0.7 uh, to actually be able to say like, scientifically, I am seeing that finger strength actually correlates with climbing harder. Um, so when we got this large data set, there's like 600 climbers on it. It's pretty, it's pretty big. It's awesome. We looked at all the single variables and none of them had an R squared above like 0.2 or 0.3, which basically meant that it only described the data like 20%. And you couldn't publish that. You couldn't really necessarily make any judgments from it. You could kind of look at it and vaguely say like, oh, it appears that it's going this way. Um, so the reason that we wanted to do this multivariate analysis is what you can do is you can take all of your variables and compare them in one single time against like max sport grade or max bouldering grade. And the way that the program works is it's able to sort of like take all of these variables that have a lot of overlap and find out what overlap you can get rid of, and then you're left with some some more like raw, meaningful data. And, and when I say overlap, I mean, okay, we have these metrics that we used. One of them is uh, max finger strength. One of them is how many repeaters in a row can you do? One of them is how long can you hang on a 20 millimeter edge? One of them is how long can you do a campus ladder, right? And they all have so much overlap because if you have really high finger strength, naturally, because of our energy systems, you're probably going to be able to do repeaters for longer, mm. right? And so they have this overlap and in both are indicators of some kind of finger metric, some kind of finger strength. And so why this multivariate analysis is really cool is that we can still include all these variables that have some kind of overlap and get some meaning out of them. Versus if I took all 15 of these variables and I made my single variable analysis and I compared each of those to climbing, they're all going to give me an R squared of like 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, and it's going to add up to more than one. So it's going to explain more than 100% of what we're trying to explain, which is impossible, right? So it, like doing that shows that there is all this overlap that means that some of this isn't meaningful. So it basically is just uh, a cooler way, a more intricate way to parse out the the true meaning of each of your variable and how it relates to the the dependent variables, the outputs are measurements of success, which were max sport climbing grade and max bouldering grade. Um, and the interesting thing for this analysis is I initially did the multivariate analysis and compared all the metrics against just max sport climbing or all the metrics against just max bouldering. And uh, the regression lines, the trend lines we were able to get were like 0.6. I'm like, oh, that's two or three times better than what we got with the single variable analysis. But when I ended up stacking them against both max sport climbing and max bouldering, we got a really good trend line, like 0 0.75, 0 0.8. Um, so for the rest of what we're going to talk about, basically all these variables that we sort of found the significance of or the importance of, we were able to compare them against both max sport climbing and max bouldering. So in a way, it lumps, it lumps them two together. So it's harder to say like, these have this exact effect on max bouldering and these have this exact effect on max sport climbing. But it's able to allow us to create this this model that can predict how hard 
you can climb in either of those things based off of these metrics. And it, it is basically like saying, oh, I have two answers that let me, ch- or I have like, I have two answers that let me check my answers against my data versus just one at a time. Like you're more likely to, be able to come up with good data in that way. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So that was an excellent explanation, but very technical as well. So in case we lost anybody, I'm going to dumb that down a little bit and uh, and then we can ask, <laughs> we can ask more questions. Yeah. But effectively, or essentially, um, if a client came to you and said, I want to climb 13A, how strong do my fingers need to be in a max hang? It's really hard to give them um, a specific number with a lot of confidence or specific percentage of body weight or whatever with a lot of confidence because the trend line, if you look at stronger fingers on a hangboard versus how hard people climb from this, you know, data collection of 600 different climbers, there's an obvious trend, like stronger fingers obviously help, but it's not it's not like a linear perfect line. It's kind of scattered all over the place. There's tons of outliers and it's hard to say with confidence we know exactly how strong your fingers need to be to climb this grade. There's just, it's just too simple, right? It's too simple of, um, what am I trying to say here? There's just way more factors involved in climbing. And so it's hard to give someone that answer with a lot of confidence. And so with the multivariate analysis, you're taking in finger strength, climbing experience, days outside. I'm actually gonna have you guys list all the 15 factors in a second. Um, <laughs> but endurance on a, on a hangboard versus the max strength, all these things go into one model. And that's, you know, that's pretty complex statistics. So people don't need to worry about how that works. But you get this model that can basically estimate how hard someone might climb if they have this collection of attributes. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that conversely, if they have a goal, it helps you look at their collection of attributes versus what you might expect from someone who climbs that grade and figure out where they're coming up short. Yeah, so I think if you combine this with with... Like you said, basically, we find the importance of each of these variables that I'll list in a minute as a as a compilation of all like 600 climbers, right? So like for this entire data set, these showed to be the most important things for people to progress in climbing, uh, which is interesting. And this is sort of the preface is that this is a big data set, but it's still maybe not the most representative data set we could have, right? It's still like everything we're going to talk about is what worked and what made these 600 people climb harder, right? Yeah. Which does not necessarily mean that these are the fastest ways to climb hard. You know, like maybe if you got a data set of everyone who's climbed 515 or all these World Cup climbers, like all these people who clearly have climbed incredibly hard, you might get a, a different weight on these variables for, you know, what's important for them to climb hard. But I think the cool thing about it is that the majority of people who get into climbing, like 98% of us will climb like 13A or less, right? And so the cool thing about this data set is this basically says like, what for these people who had all this stuff going on in their lives, who made it to where they were, what was important for them to get to this point, right? Because like what worked for the World Cup climber probably isn't going to work for the person who's trying to go from 511 to 512. Like they can't handle the training load. They probably don't have the resources. Their lives are different. They're not getting paid to do it, right? And so the, the cool thing about this is it it is very much so like indicative of the, you know, I don't want to say like average, but of the average of people in the U.S. who are getting into climbing. Yeah, it's it's very it's very relevant for everybody listening. 
versus yeah. like the pro climber who, you know, who cares what they're doing? <laughs> exactly. Nice. That was, yeah, that was a good way to say that. So this, uh, just to clarify, so this data set is 600 people that have been coached by the power company team. Is that right? And that's how they collected all this data? Not necessarily coached by, but they like, they submitted their, their data. Um, and then, <clears throat> and Chris was kind enough to share it with us so we could kind of take a look and, and understand, um, and so that's the other thing I think is in this conversation of like how hard, and that's like a really common question that I think I've gotten a lot. And I think a lot of like, how hard, how high does Mary Maxing need to be to climb 513? And, um, you know, you can take a look at the status and you can pull on uh, an average, you know, for the average, for everybody that said 513A is their max grade, this is their max king in a straight to strength to weight ratio. You know what I mean? And so, you can do that, but when you understand that max hang correlation to max climbing grade is 18%, 0.18, that average for the 513 climber and pull from the data set becomes a little bit less. It just becomes fuzzier, right? Like it becomes, and so, or saying things like, um, or like hearing things a lot that I've heard is a lot of like, um, yeah, like I have 513 finger strength or I have five pole finger strength or these kinds of, um, you know, maybe it started like, it just kind of like built into becoming more of these like blanket type statements. And um, instead of just looking at averages and comparing you to the average of the data set, looking at like, but how much outdoor experience you have all of those things. And so when you like for us as coaches and having this model or for people that go and like entering their data on like our website or whatever it is, is to like, really like people that haven't climbed 500 days outside you know is like that is going to carry this huge weight in this um in this model and so it can help i think get a little bit away from saying things like i have 513 finger strength um and this model if you put in some numbers like this but your you know outdoor climbing days are really low or some other stuff is really low it's going to knock you, you know what I mean? You're not going to, yeah, it's just going to, it's going to help put all of that into perspective with all of the things that come into, into this. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by better help. Let's talk about therapy. Have you tried therapy? It's fucking awesome. I go to therapy twice a month through better help and it's super Super helpful. I have a lot of supportive people in my life, but nothing beats sitting down and talking with a professional who is there for no other reason than to listen and to help. It's the best. I would literally pay twice as much for therapy. And I'm actually paying full price for therapy right now, despite them being a sponsor of the podcast, uh, which I just realized I should look into that. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge and without any awkwardness. It's super easy. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com nugget today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 
nugget. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef makes eating delicious, healthy meals so ridiculously easy. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, regardless of your personal lifestyle. Whether you prefer keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, or gluten-free foods, Green Chef has tasty meals just for you and your way of eating. The thing that I personally love most about Green Chef is that their recipes feature organic produce and sustainably sourced ingredients. That means you get the convenience of a meal kit service without compromising on food quality. And for me, eating quality food is the most important thing that I do to feel good. I really can tell the difference if I'm eating quality food. For dinner last night, I made almond crusted pork chops with sauteed squash, green beans, and roasted red peppers with a lemon aioli sauce. Oh my God, chef's kiss. It was so good. Again, like last time, it was supposed to serve two people and I ate the entire thing and I felt amazing afterwards. I loved every single bite. Right now, my dear listeners, Green Chef is offering you guys 60% off and free shipping. That's insane. Go to greenchef.com slash nugget60 and use code nugget60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Once again, that's greenchef.com slash nugget60 and code nugget60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And now back to the show. Yeah, that that's great. So basically what we're doing here is we're helping give people a little bit of clarity as far as priorities and perspective on the importance of all these different things that we could be focused on in our climbing, right? Like I, exactly. I'm obsessed with finger strength because I really feel like it is one of my limiting things. So I talk about it all the time. So probably people listening think it's more important than it actually is. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's what we're talking about today is what you found from this analysis and um, and what what people can take away from it and what they can do to um, get themselves on on the most efficient track, hopefully towards better climbing, you know, with the caveat that yes, this is based on six hundred specific people and um, you know, take it with a grain of salt. It's not the same for everybody. Um, Casey, you threw out an interesting statistic that kind of is still blowing my mind. 98% of climbers will cl- never climb harder than 13A or they'll climb 13A and below. Is, is that is that true or did you just make that up? Is that a real statistic? Oh, I completely made that up. Okay, great. Uh, I think if I wonder you, what the number is though. That's, that's interesting know, to think about. It, it definitely depends on what you consider a climber. I think that if you considered everyone who spent at least one day in a gym or one day outside, that would certainly be the case. I would right, right, right. I'd be really curious to to know like of people who have gym memberships or something like that. Of people know? who can make it through one of my episodes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how many of them? How many of them climb 13A or harder? I would, I would love to see that statistic. Maybe I'll do a poll with all you guys listening. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so sort of diving in here, uh, the variables that we looked at for this, um, since you mentioned it earlier, I was going to go through it. Are how old you are, how much you weigh, what is your height, what is your body mass index, what is your wingspan. Uh, and then therefore, what is your ape index? Uh, what is your training experience? How many days outside have you climbed? This one is a little interesting. Uh, I think it had a little bit of nuance in calculating it because we kind of looked at like 
how many years someone has climbed, what is their season they get to climb outside, and how many days a week do they do that. Um, so for anyone who's going to go, uh, you know, put their metrics into our our calculator on Project Direct's website, um, that's kind of like how we would look at that is trying to estimate this, which outdoor climbing experience turns out to be really important. So it is, it is, you know, important to really sit back and think like, have I really only climbed 300 days outside? Have, mm. I, have I really climbed? You know, it's probably less than you think. Um, but moving on, then we add maximum number of pull-ups you could do in a set. Amount of weight you can add on to a max hang on a 20 millimeter edge. So that's going to give you your finger strength, strength to weight ratio as well. And then the amount of weight you can add to a pull-up, uh, which is going to give you sort of your like max pull-up strength to weight ratio as well. Um, and then maximum number of push-ups you can do in a set, the maximum number of sets of seven on, three off repeaters. And then the amount of time you can spend campusing with your feet on, moving up and down one rung, and the amount of time you can campus with your feet on, moving up and down two rungs. Um, and those last two, when we were looking at the data, I think those have a lot of variability in people's setups and understanding yeah. that one. I think that the other ones are maybe a little more, uh, you know, cut and dried with people being able to execute them well, considering that this survey had people probably doing these at home gyms, at different gyms across, across the U S and with a varying understanding of how to do the, the exercises there. Right. I, I saw that you standardized the edge size for the campusing, the foot on campusing, but I immediately thought like, well, I've seen, I've never seen two campus boards that were the same as far as like, you know, those foot on rungs, like, are they, are they like right below the campus board? Are they recessed like three feet below the campus board? Are they big? Are they small? Are they greasy? Are you wearing climbing shoes? You know, all those, all those sorts of questions, but anyway. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you want, I can sort of start diving in to. Was there one more? Was there just how long you can hang on a 20 mil edge of body weight in one hang? Is that one? Oh, one there two? was. Okay. Yeah, totally. I missed that on there. No worries. Yep. I, um, so I, you know, obviously I had all my notes and stuff. I was getting ready for this and I think I reread your first email, Carly, or maybe it was in the PDF. And I was like, oh shit, I should have done the test. Like I should have done it. And then we could have oh, talked yeah. about it. And so like 15 minutes before we jumped on the call, I opened up your sheet and started filling it out. And then I realized like I maybe have half of these things, you know, I haven't done mm -hmm. like repeaters to failure or a max hang to, or, mm -hmm. or just a body weight hang to failure and all these sorts of things. So I wasn't able to do that. And I, I figure, uh, it probably maybe afterwards, maybe after. Yeah. It might, I don't know. It's a lot see. of stuff though. Like that's going to derail my training for like a week if I do, <laughs> do all this stuff, but it does wreck you. You got to take like two days at least to go yeah. through all of them. Yeah. Which, yeah. I bet. One interesting thing that we found during this is that I was able to create a model just using your max pull, like your max pull up, your max finger strength and the number of days you've climbed outside. And it gave me an R squared of like 0.6 mm. versus using all 15 of these metrics got us to like 0 0.75, 0 0.8. So I was like, whoa, that's, you know, just pretty cool that those are, you know, pretty, pretty important for sure. Uh, you yeah, know, but all this other stuff adds in the nuance that, that bumps us up to being able to understand it, you know, 25% better still. Right. Yeah. That isn't really interesting. Um, did you look at days climbing outside only? What was the correlation with that? Yeah, days climbing outside only. We didn't consider days in the gym. No, I mean, like, did you look at just uh, that single variable analysis? 
Yeah, we did. And so for sport climbing, the correlation, like just day school climbing outside um, was 19%. Um, for reference, max hang was 18%. Okay. Um, so, you know, right around in the single variable analysis world, pretty similar. Um, that was for sport climbing. For bouldering, um, days climbing outside, the correlation is down at 14%. So, oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, the you know, a little bit less because we're kind of talking about like 14 to 19%. Like, you know, like we were saying, like no single no single variable just like popped out as, you know, just being like, yeah, whoa, which I think, you know, maybe intuitively as we climb and we realize how much is going on and all the different things that like makes sense. But it was, it was actually cool to just look at it and be like, well, is that just a feeling that we have? Or is that, um, is that true? And, you know, it turns out, yeah, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's, it's the, it's why the client's solving the climbing puzzle is so interesting. But also, it doesn't mean that 18% is the maximum that that could be correlated because it right. yeah. mm-hmm. ended up being the most important factor, while as there were other other single variables that were in the 25, 30% range. That, Wait, that, yeah. okay, help me understand that. Help me understand how it could be the single most important factor if by itself it doesn't have a strong correlation. How does that work? That is a great question, and I am not that good of a statistician. Okay. But basically, um, we just have so much correlation going on. There's just so much randomness in in what we're looking at uh, that, you know, that single variable analysis may be above or it may be below the importance, but because we were comparing it. Also, I think the other thing too is when we created this really good model, we had two dependent variables. We had two met- metrics for success. We compared days climbing outside to how hard you boulder and sport climb, you know, versus max strength and how hard you boulder and sport climb. So that may be a better way of describing why it ended up being more important um, is because we actually had like, yeah, two ways to check our answer versus versus just one. The other thing to think about too, is like when we're looking at two variables, let's say we're looking at um, max hang to max outdoor bouldering grade or max outdoor sport climbing. We're looking at causation here. And so like you might, it's kind of our instinct or like instinct is to look at like how strong do I need to get my fingers to climb outside? But the reality is it can work the other way too. Like climbing outside more can help make your fingers stronger. Um, And so as you know, as you kind of like parse through this and think about this is like, um, it's not so much that all this training is causing us to climb outside harder. That can also go the other way. Um, And, you know, people that only climb outside or certainly have some fitness and some strength, you know, and uh, just keeping that in mind. And so when you put it, you know, when you bring it all together and you're looking at all these variables and looking at how important they are, you know, part of that is like, well, now we're looking at it all together. We have these two dependent variables. We're bringing it all together in this outdoor climbing experience kind of shooting up higher and higher on the variable importance factors. Um, and so that can start to make a little bit more sense when you start to realize in that single variable analysis, again, we're looking at co- correlation, not causation. And so it's not a one way streak. These things affect each other. Okay. Got it. And, and, you know, the higher, the higher level statistics you do, the more that you do have to interpret what's going on as well. And so this is our interpretation of the data, um, 
and and there's there's a couple things that that is a little more explained um in the the climate magazine poster or the the post on our website there uh but yeah so it's like you know still preliminary in the way that we still had you know this 600 person data set there's a little bit interpretation that we'll talk about um once we once we dive in a little bit more uh but i think that it still shows some really cool things that uh we did actually like I corroborated a lot of my results um, with Lattice Company and reached out to them. And I was like, hey, is this kind of what you guys are seeing? And will you give me your data? <laughs> and they were like, this is what we're seeing in that. No, we won't do that, <laughs> which is fine. That's I get it. Yeah. It's fine, Tom. You know, it, it's we still had some cool stuff from this. Uh, but so, yeah, it's like open for interpretation in some way. But, you know, it was it was nice that we, you know, we chatted with uh, Chris over Power Company Climbing and and Tom also. And they're like, yeah, this is awesome. This is like we're psyched you guys are doing this. And this is a lot of what we're seeing as well. So, you know, like Lattice has done this type of analysis. And that is partly what they do when you do a Lattice assessment as well. Um, but we are just talking about it. You know, <laughs> we just got so psyched on what we found um, for, you know, reasons we'll dive into here that we thought it was more important to share than to sort of just be like, all right, this is now our little coaching secret sauce, you know? Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, we'll dive into that in one second. I think that's the next thing we should dive into. Um, I, I do want to share this. I should have said this earlier, but yeah, you guys have posted this in a long blog post on your website. So I'll link to that for people that want to read into this in more detail. And I'm assuming the PDF is on there too. Um, we have the, the long blog post, the PDF isn't, but we, we have the blog post and then we also have the climbing calculator. So you can go to our website and enter in all of your stuff and see what it predicts for you. Um, and so the caveat to that is like, we would like to refine this model further. So like, if you enter in your data, we're going to like eventually in like a month or two, kind of like do another iteration. Um, but it's like, we want to, we want to like let people use this you know and like see and you could you know you can put in put in your stats and see where you where you land um but then also there's gonna be like a slightly shorter version of this it's gonna be um out on climbing mag on the 14th so from what this from this podcast date five days from when we're recording but the podcast will probably be released after the article is published so um, yeah, there's various inner ways that you can interact with this and like you can read the full, the full nerdy, nerdy version on the blog. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, cool. Okay, let's, let's dive into the results and what you learned from it. And um, I, I like this question. I'm going to start with this because Carly, I had asked you this in an email and you kind of sent me some of the big takeaways. And I loved that there's a few things, this is a very leading question, but um, you've already told me this stuff, so I want to hit on it first and then we can expand. But <laughs> I love that um, ape index, height, weight, BMI, I love that all of those are part of this analysis because basically it sounds like the takeaway is none of them really matter that much, so just stop worrying about it. Um, but yeah, what did you learn from the analysis that would surprise most climbers? Maybe... Let's start with the things I just mentioned and your thoughts there, and then we can expand to the more physical uh, training, you know, metrics and things like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, oh, did you? Go ahead, Casey. Okay. You're all good. Um, yeah, I mean, this kind of shocked me, and I was really excited about it when I first started making this model. Is that, yeah, exactly. Height, weight, uh, wingspan, BMI do not turn out to be significant at all. Uh, which 
again, when I kind of talk about the interpretation of this data, what that says to me is that no matter what you start with, you know, the things that you can't necessarily change about yourself in this way, no matter what you start with here, it does not say that you won't climb hard. Basically means that whatever your size and your ratios are, you can climb whatever grade your training allows you to climb or your experience allows you to climb, mm. which I think is so cool, you know, because cool. like more often than not, and part of why I felt like a burnout on climbing is just, I'd be at the crag and you hear the same conversations over and over again about like, oh, I'm just not tall enough. I don't, I like way too much, you know, I don't have the ape index and you're like, okay, well, you know, maybe those things are important for like a singular move on a singular thing where it is for sure easier if you're taller or X, Y, and Z. But what this says is like, if you have the grit and the determination and you climb for long enough and you do the right training, you have no glass ceiling. That's awesome. Which is just really empowering to me, especially, you know, the weight side. And I think that, you know, many of us climbers have gone through our ups and downs with body image and weight. Um, and I certainly have myself, uh, you know, I think I got told many times uh, growing up, like, oh, you're going to climb way harder if you lose 20 pounds, you know? And, oh, wow. you know, it's like that may be true, but the effort it would take me to lose that weight and the, you know, like malnutrition I have or things like that are not as important as learning more skills and spending more time outside and training. Um, and so that was really meaningful for me. And that's part of why I got so excited on continuing this analysis. Um, was to maybe give a little shout out to everyone out there who it's like, yeah, you know, like weight does not matter with the caveat that everyone that we, uh, everyone in this data set was generally within the healthy BMI index. Okay. Is what we looked at, which the healthy BMI index is like 19 to 25. And most people in this data set were at like 22. Um, but we, you know, we had like quite the range we had all the way from like 10 to 40. Um, and so like for me as if, if you're five, eight, that means that you can be between like 120 pounds and 185 pounds and generally still be with it. So like the range is really large. Like, mm. yes, if we did this status out on every single person in the U S you know, a, to like several hundred pounds or something like I'm sure it would come out as being important. Right. But like for most people who care about training and who will have climbed for this long and, and doing all these things, like the chances are you're within the healthy BMI index. And like, I technically am not, you know, I weigh like 165 pounds uh, and I have like a plus seven and I'm really muscular for a climber. And so it's like, you know, just by BMI, I weigh too much for that, but that does not actually mean anything. Because How tall are you? Uh, I'm five, eight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know it was a little contradictory. I think I said that the healthy BMI for me would be like 175, but it's like right around 168, 170 from when okay. I looked it up. So I was like, oh man, yeah, I'm on the upper end of this, but it, it's still, it's still, you know, the weight doesn't matter is the yeah. takeaway. From no, I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I'm, I mean, um, this is good timing. I was just editing a follow-up that I just recorded with Emil Abrahamson. I was editing it today and I'm planning to put it out soon. And uh, he climbed his first V14 in the spring and then he spent the fall training totally differently. He gained 15 pounds, just started eating more, let his body do whatever it was going to do, just started eating more food and training his ass off. 
and uh, gained 15 pounds over a few months this fall and then sent his first V15 in December or January, which is just like so sick, you know, and he went from 167 pounds to like 182 or something like that, you know, like he's a pretty muscular dude. And uh, yeah, I mean, examples like that just kind of shit all over like the outdated paradigm, right? Of like the skinny, scrawny 90s climber and thinking that we need to look like that and be all ripped and shredded and stuff. It's just like, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not important. So yeah, yeah that's awesome that you, uh, you're you able to kind of corroborate that with the data. Yeah, yeah, that was probably my favorite thing that we pulled out of it. Like, you know, Carly's going to be a little more excited about the, the trading metric side of it. She's been diving into that a lot more than I have. But I was like, oh, this is... This is cool. That gives hopefully a lot of people a lot of confidence. One thing that was interesting is age did turn out to be slightly significant. Like in theory, the older you are, the less likely you'll climb hard. But in my opinion, that probably comes down to like, oh, did you get a job? Do you have, uh, (laughs) you know, did you X, Y, and Z that just meant you couldn't climb outside Mm. as much? I think it's still, if you had the same dedication and time and all this stuff at an older age, it probably wouldn't matter. But, you know, just again, this is a data set of 600 normal people who have been climbing and that, that is what it said. So I'm like, oh, you know, wish age didn't matter, but you know, it showed out to be maybe a little important, but I think that's one that's easy to, easy to get around. It's not like a deal breaker, like your height. Right. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, the height in, in uh, Wingspan, Ape Index, is really cool, too. And I think, like you said, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like, yeah, there might be a move on a climb or many climbs or specific styles of climbs where it changes the grade or, you know, it changes the experience depending on your height. But that's what's so cool about climbing. There's so many ways to find challenge in climbing. And no matter what body type you are, I guarantee you can find a style of climbing in an area that's going to suit you really well and plays to your strengths. And, um, you know, it, it helps to be a short climber with short arms if you're climbing on roofs where the holds aren't that far apart, you know, and you just have to lock off and, and you know, pull into the wall and things like that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the only other thing that uh, this data set doesn't tell us that much is we're measuring our metrics for success to be what is your hardest singular boulder or sport climb right and so you know what this data does show is that you can go it also might show you can go find a hard climb that suits you you know for your height and wingspan and x y and z right but maybe it would vary a little bit if you're like oh how many of this grade in these different styles and like dive into all Mm. these different ways to measure success like hardest on site or x y and z and uh and maybe it would change a little bit like you know, I have only climbed 13B, right? But I've climbed 13B sport and trad, and I've climbed 50 13As and Bs put together. But then someone else in the status set who projected a 13A for a month and then a 13B for two months has the same measured success. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I gotcha. So one of my worries was like, oh, do we need all these more, all these other ways to measure success? Like, should we ask for people's you know, uh, hardest onsite or all these things. And, and I think the cool thing about large data sets and hopefully continuing to be a larger data set is that there will be enough people in there, like my friend who just sent a single of those and enough people like me who've sent a bunch of them that it, they end up washing out mm. in the mix. Um, so yeah, that's one of our goals for getting, getting more people to kind of do the survey and stuff is to, to see if anything else kind of pops out there. Yeah. Cool. I should have asked this earlier. What is the range of climbing abilities of the participants of the survey? 
And is there kind yeah. of like a density around a certain grade range? There totally is. Yeah, we did sort of this description of um, all of our variables. So for max, or for bouldering, uh, there were 477 people. Uh, the average was V7. And the deviation from that was 2.5. So generally, you could think that the majority of people climbed between V5 and V9 centered around V7. Um, and for sport climbing, 458 uh, people, uh, the average was 12.5, basically like perfectly mid 512 uh, with a standard deviation of one. So the majority of people were between, uh, you know, like 11 plus and yeah, like 13 plus like right between 11.5 and 13.5 centered around mid 512. Okay. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. That's a, that's actually more advanced than I would have thought. That's great. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have that for all of the variables. So if you ever, yeah, if you're ever curious, <laughs> you know, uh, all these other things. I mean, I guess that makes sense because you're, you know, you're probably not getting 600 people who climb 510 who are submitting all this data about their weighted pull-ups and, you know, max hangs and things like that. So these are people that like take climbing very seriously and train and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Carly, what surprised you about this analysis? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of things. I guess let's just probably the biggest thing that was interesting is like when you put, and again, this is for this data set, when we have everything together and we have these variable importance factors. So this is these are significant variables that are influencing the data set. Um, and when you enter this in a model, we have like, you know, different coefficients for each of these variables, weighting them differently in order to get the model to be at the 75 to 80% correlation, the um, the coefficient that we were multiplying your max hang had to be negative. Meaning that wow. as, you know, for this data set to create a model that took in all of these variables that we're talking about and create one that is in that 75 to 80%, 80 correlation range, the harder that or the higher these max hang numbers were creeping really was not only not helping, but we act it was actually got this negative, um, <laughs> a negative thing attached to it, wow. which was, you know, you know, I think and we'll probably spend some time talking about interpreting that and, um, was interesting. I think I've had, you know, and I, you know, in the context of, you know, maybe I kind of felt this way in that, like, there's a lot of people that are like, the max hangs really been, really been pushed. And that doesn't mean that it finger strength doesn't matter. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. But if instead we're looking at this, like, how properly is this metric being trained in this particular data set is being you know, these, you know, people are getting overpowered for their skill level, maybe, you know, but it's, it's at some point, it's getting a little bit too much attention um, from the individual climbers. So that was pretty, pretty counterintuitive um, to, you know, a lot of, I think what we've all heard a lot about. Yeah. Can I, uh, can I dumb that down again? Yeah, and, and maybe maybe attempt to interpret it, and then you guys can both tell me what you think. Um, yeah. But yeah, so what I hear you saying, so for the multivariate analysis, there's all these different factors that feed into this model, and what you two have to do is decide how much do we weight 
each of these. Um, and you, you keep tweaking it. Are you shaking your head? Yeah, uh, the, that is what is the That's what the, models, of, uh, the, okay, model, the tells model tells you. How important is each one? Got it, okay. And basically, it told us that finger strength was, uh, it was important. It met the, the bar for being an important variable, but it was negative. So like if I filled out all that, it filled out the survey, and I said that my finger strength was 2.0 or something for, you know, strength weight ratio. And it said I climbed V10. And then I go put the exact same numbers in and I say that my finger strength is 2.2. It's going to say that I climbed V9. Oh, wow. And basically. That's a better way of describing yeah, it. Yeah, that's Thank good. You. That's good. <laughs> basically. So what that told us is like what you're saying, a lot of people are obsessed about finger strength. I think it's like one of the biggest things I see on social media every day. And everybody is just like so into finger strength that basically it told us for this, these 600 people, they overtrained finger strength. Mm. And so, and so the model bill, it's like, Oh, I need 2.2 finger strength to be able to climb V nine. Right. Mm. And I need 2.3 to be able to climb V 10. When in reality, a bunch of people could do that with 1.3 or 1.5 or something like that. Okay. Um, whereas, you know, so it's like, it showed us it was very important. And on the flip side, like weighted pull-ups were important. And it was really positively correlated. So if I went back in, I said, I can do more weight with my weighted pull-ups, it would say that I climbed harder. Mm. And so this is where the interpretation comes in. And, you know, being climbers really helped with this is it, it doesn't necessarily mean weighted pull-ups are incredibly important in comparison to finger strength, but that within this data set, people trained at the right amount. Got like it. They did enough, they got strong enough, and then they went outside and they did a climb that like probably required that amount mm. of you know, pulling strength. Um, okay. I'm so gonna, I'm going to like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to jump in and dumb down again. Um, I think I can do a better job this time. So we're not saying that finger strength doesn't matter for how hard you climb or that having stronger fingers makes you worse at climbing. That's not what we're saying. Obviously, I think we all know and agree that having stronger fingers opens up the potential to climb harder grades and is important to climb harder grades. But what you guys found in this model is likely that some of those 600 people listened to The Nugget or some other climbing podcast or followed someone on Instagram. They came to the conclusion that max finger strength was the most important thing. They probably spent a lot of time on that instead of spending that time working on skills or working on all these other factors. And so that actually hurt their climbing performance relative to if they had spent more of that time on these other things like getting outside or... Um, doing weighted pull-ups or bouldering or whatever else. Is yeah, that... exactly. Okay. And so, and so basically it's like this analysis told us like, where should, where should you spend your time? If you are these 600 people, what is important to spend your time on? Uh, you know, and if it's indicative of the, you know, the climbing population in the U S then it's like, what should people spend their time on? So yeah, like in theory, spend less time training fingers and spend more time like, I don't know, self-assessing your climbing videos and seeing what you could be doing wrong or just going climbing mm. and trying hard and, you know, increasing your max, your max grade by, you know, having those three extra sessions a month to hop on your project rather than like do your very rigorous hangboard routine. Mm. But if you feel like you've spent a ton of time climbing outside, you've lived in your van for a really long time, you know, you've like got the skills, you know how to red point, you're really mentally strong and you truly think that your fingers are the thing holding you back, then like, yeah, this isn't saying that you shouldn't go do that to bump up your game because I right. think that that's something that, that we do all know and why it's gotten so much attention and why we all care so much about it is it is important. You know? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That's great. Mm -hmm. Everybody's different, you know, and I think that's always, that's always the important thing. You know, somebody that comes in with seven years of recreational climbing experience is still probably going to have more skills. And so when they bump up a max hang, you know, they might see really tangible effects um, versus somebody that is in the gym training three days a week, gets out once a week, doesn't have a ton of, ton of outdoor experience. Basically, you know, at some point, you know, understanding perching mechanics or how to knee bar or heel hook mechanics or any of that kind of stuff is going to become more relevant, you know, and it's, and everybody's different and has like, this is a big complicated question. And so, um, it's, um, one of those things to think about, but one thing that we see sometimes is like almost like a trap that people fall into is like really feeling like, Oh, but I want five thirteen finger strength. And then, um, and it's a lot easier to spend time doing that. And you get that instant gratification of like, my numbers are going up, you know, like I'm getting better. And it's a lot harder to measure something like how well do I read a route? Mm. How am I like able to, um, suss out beta, find stuff that works for me, which is still you getting better going out and having those experiences. But what we function a lot in the, like, we want that like measured, um, you know, kind of like gratification that something like max, you know, something that like a little bit more of a measurable training metric really tends to give us. And so, um, just kind of broadening that for yourself and making sure that we're finding that balance in there is something that we would really encourage. Mm. Yeah. And even for like the ego side of it too. I mean, how many people care so much about their metrics and they get strong and they're like, I have 513 finger strength. And then they go have a hard time on a 513 and get really disappointed, mm. shut down and then are like, Oh God, X, Y, and Z. I need to go train more or something like that. Like I've always found for me, like going in and training gives me these expectations that, you know, it takes a while climbing outside to actually catch up to. And that can be really disappointing. And so, you know, I prefer to try to keep those a little more balanced. Um, so, you know, sometimes I get scared of metrics. I know they're really important. They're really helpful to coach. Uh, but you know, sometimes putting too many numbers to that, I think can be, can be tougher on your ego mm. and your, your headspace than, than not. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rumple. My Rumble Blanket is literally one of my favorite things I own. It's so cozy. It's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go. Rumple's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water repellent finish, so it's water resistant, stain resistant, and odor resistant. This thing is the best. And as I said, it's the coziest blanket you could ask for. Perfect for staying warm at the boulders or at the crag. Great for camping. I have one in my van and use it all the time. And just great to have around the house. It'll be your new favorite blanket, full stop, whatever the circumstances. And Rumpel also makes many other amazing products. The Nanoloft Travel Blanket is the size of a Nalgene when packed down and can travel with you wherever you go. And the Everywhere Mat and the Everywhere Towel are two products that I also use and love. As someone who lives in a van, those two products come in handy all the time. Go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order of amazing blankets and gear. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. 
This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This stuff is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I use the repair cream almost every single night, all the time. I use it multiple times a night if I'm climbing in a sharp and crimpy area like Waco Tanks or Leavenworth or some of the other places I like to climb. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin's torn up, I wash my hands and then I apply repair cream several times throughout the evening. And it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster and getting me back on the rock the next day. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com to check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And if you want to learn more about how to use Rhino products and which ones might be right for your skin or for the rock type that you like to climb on, I recorded an episode with founder Justin Brown, who's a friend of mine, way back in episode 22. That's still a great episode, and I still highly recommend it. So check that out to learn more. One final time, rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. And now back to the show. I, I want to share a thought that came to mind too. I travel obviously a lot and meet a lot of people that spend a lot of time rock climbing and uh, just observe people's performance or style quite often. And I think a theme, I think it's fair to say like a strong theme that I've noticed over all my years of climbing is getting really good at climbing uh, while you're relatively weak, while you're a newer climber. And then eventually learning how to add strength to that tends to work a lot better for people. I, I feel like more people get success with that versus the people that get strong right off the bat and learn how to burl their way or learn that they can burl their way through things and just kind of overpower everything. Um, it's a rare person who starts out really strong and then gets really good at climbing. I feel like it's just easy to... Um, like you, like you said, Carly, get stuck in that trap of thinking that, well, strength got me here. So even more strength is going to get me there and then beyond, you know, um, I've just seen that a lot. Like I, I see, I probably see more people who are just ridiculously strong and bad at climbing and like not climbing very hard relative to what they can hold on to than the opposite. Yeah. And one of my friends, Dalen, his favorite thing to say is like being mediocre at climbing for a really long time is the best thing you can do because you probably won't get injured. You know, if you're on the like slow increase, you're climbing outside a lot, you probably won't get injured. You get to do all the cool climbs in your area when they're hard and cool for you. You know, <laughs> like red pointing that 510 plus when you climb 510 plus is mega. But then if you go train for six months and get five total strong, then maybe it's like not a cool experience for you anymore. You know, there's like all these reasons I think it's really awesome to like get good first and learn how to really love it and enjoy it and not get injured, mm. then go train. You know, I think is is a good way to do it. And it, it depends. You live in a van, you have time to do that all the time. If you work nine to five and you only have access to the gym for three days a week and you have long winters or something like, yeah, obviously it's going to be a little bit of a different game. And, and there are ways to train um skill-based activities in the gym there's many ways to do that and that's like mainly what we focus on coaching in a lot of ways is like yeah how can you still get those gains and stay on the like steep part of the skills learning curve while getting some of these strength benefits as well mm. yeah getting creative with skill drills and like you know if we're talking about like casey and i were talking about earlier you know like deadlifting and you know using your posture your chain but like 
hey, can you you can do that with a barbell, but like let's get you, you know, let's get you onto some underclings and make sure that that like is being translated onto the wall. Mm. Um, and so just kind of putting that together. And even if, you know, we're talking about outdoor climbing experience, but even if you don't have the the life where you're like climbing outside more than once or twice a week, you know, getting and learning and seeking out skill-based climbing workouts um, is something that is an amazing way to continue to develop in a way that is, um, yeah, is a little bit more skill-based. And so um, in finding the right balance therein uh, is something that we definitely recommend. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I've talked about this on the show before, but for the people that um, don't have great access to outdoor rock climbing, a great simple hack that everybody listening to this can do, because I know you have a phone, uh, is just watch more climbing videos. Watch more rock climbing videos. Watch, you know, you know, find find athletes that resonate with you, that um, seem similar to you in the style that you like to climb or their height or whatever, people that inspire you watch all their videos, then watch a bunch more and just really closely pay attention to how they move, how they grab holds, how they put their feet on things. I think that's just when you do go outside, when you get that chance, it's going to kind of lay a subtle foundation in your subconscious and you're just going to see more options available to you. You're going to, you know, have kind of some intuition for movement that wouldn't have otherwise been there. So I think that can be really helpful. Yeah. And I used yeah, to... Anti- oh, go ahead, Kizzy. Oh, I was going to say, I used to think that uh, all the people posting their kilter board videos online was like the most vain thing you could do. And then I started kilter boarding a little more. I was like, oh man, here is seven different people with seven different sizes doing these different betas that you can then go immediately try and get that feedback to practice. And so it's like watching the climbing videos of the people and then actually getting to go do the exact moves with those same holds. I think it's actually a really cool thing. I don't think the kilter board is necessarily like the best to translate to outdoor climbing. Uh, like if you did that on the moon board, maybe that'd be better. Uh, but like, I still think that's a really valuable tool to do exactly what you're talking about with like limited resources in a gym. Yeah. Videoing yourself. Yeah. Because totally. sometimes I remember the first time I videoed myself, I was like, who, who gave her these bouncy feet? Why are these feet bouncing so much? I had no idea that was even, yeah. Like I'll get like bouncy heels. Um, if I like, like I've now made a concerted effort to like get it under control a little bit, but I never would have noticed that had I not started like videoing myself five years ago, you know? And Mm -hmm. like, it's so yeah. Watching more videos, but also watching videos yourself climb is such an awesome tool and totally worth the time. Nice. Let's dive more into this. So given what you've learned from this whole project, what aspects of climbing or training should boulderers be focused on? I want to ask this question for both boulderers and then for sport climbers. Can we answer that given given what we learned from this analysis? Not as not as deeply as I would I would like because we set it up so that it compared against both sport climbing and bouldering. We sort of got this single what's the most important thing to climb hard? Uh, metric, but I did the I did both of those in the beginning, uh, and I didn't get as good of a trend line uh, when I just compared against sport or just compared against bouldering. Um, were they different factors versus the combined? They were the same metrics, but they did have slightly different uh, weights on the variables. Some of the variables did show a little more important than um, than others. Like in bouldering, uh, how much weight you could add to a pull up did show more importance than in sport climbing. 
which I think is totally fair. Like there are more sport climbs where you probably need finger endurance more than you need big muscle pulling endurance. And there are more boulders where you're doing compression moves and it doesn't matter because the hold is massive, you know? Uh, so that one turned out to be important. Most of the other ones stayed relatively the same. However, um, I don't know, Carly, if you can remember, um, we kind of like ended up semi abandoning that, that once we found out we mm -hmm. much better, uh, analysis comparing to both, but do you remember if there are any others that were important? Yeah, I think that was the, I think that was the bigger one, um, that, you know, that's a little bit intuitive, like big, big pulling strength um, for bouldering played a little bit more of a role. And then sport climbing was like a little bit more into some of the power endurance numbers. I actually think to the um, days outdoor climbing was a little bit more important for sport climbing um, than for bouldering, which sense. I think kind of makes sense. And like, I'm, I'm feeling that like really hard, you know, like there's like 120 feet of climbing that I'm doing. It's not just the opening boulder. It's also the middle boulder and then all the pacing, all the five fold plus pacing that the mm. tempo climbing that's happening between. And um, yeah, just the number of moves that is happening in, in a really long sport climb is just a lot more moves. There's a lot more opportunity for skill, you know, to come into play. All right. So maybe, maybe, wait, we disagree, <laughs> disagree. Yeah. Well, I got to shut up my boulders for all the new. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have a theory. I have a theory. I feel yeah. like, I feel like bouldering in the gym, especially if, a, you know, in most modern gyms that have a spray wall and or a board of some type, I feel like that's just more similar to the outdoor bouldering, ex bouldering experience than sport climbing in the gym where like, I don't know. I'm, I've, I've done a shitload of outdoor sport climbing and I'm still so bad at gym sport climbing. Like it's so completely different, different style, different holds, different pacing. Mm. Um, there's never any rests inside. You're just like sprinting up things. All the clips are hard and there's the bolts are three feet apart. So you have to clip like 75 times on like a 40 foot mm. route, which is annoying. Um, yeah, it's just very different, way less technical. The footholds are too big inside compared to outside to, to really be, relevant for skills i think yeah. same same steven i uh it's do not sport climbing in a gym like it's work it's wild. it's so hard and i it's do want so to give hard. credit though there for i i do think there are a lot of tactics to learn in sport climbing there's a lot of a lot of stuff uh and i my opinion on it too is i think it is far easier to go find a boulder that suits you Mm. that you can go climb hard than it is. I think that's climbing. true too. Sport climbing is much more of an equalizer because almost always there's going to be at least one move that's hard if you're tall and at least one move that's hard if you're short mm. or at least one move if you're hard for anything, right? Like it is so much harder to find a sport climb that is like perfectly suited to you, but you can for sure go do that in a boulder. I think. Totally. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a good point. Um, but yeah, so yeah, sorry, we couldn't answer your question a little bit better there of splitting between bouldering and sport climbing. Well, uh, let me ask you this. So how are you using this with your clients? If you have a client come to you and say, hey, I want to climb 513 this year, how strong do my fingers have to be? Given that you have all this information now, how do you answer that question? Do you point them towards other things to focus on instead? Or do you have them fill out, um, you know, your... Uh, I'm blanking on the yeah. word for it. Your your test, your assessment online, and then go from there. What does that look like? Yeah, I think so. Again, this we've been talking about metrics and all of this that's coming into play, and I think that's like an important place to start. If you've never worked for somebody before, like let's get an idea of what's going on. If there's like this huge like 
where you start with the assessment and there's like a clear hole, like, you know, they want to climb 513 and they can only do two pull-ups, you know, that's like a great place to start. But if they're kind of in a situation where they're maybe like are quite strong and they have a lot of outdoor climbing experience, you know, is looking at head game and skills. And this is just like one tool, right? This is like the training tool to like find, is there a clear red flag, a clear like low hanging fruit or whatever it is that we want to work on. Um, but if somebody came to us and they like did this and they were like really quite strong, but their outdoor climbing was really, really like maybe they've been outside 70 days you know, it can also serve as a red flag in that. And then we're going to like turn to the outdoor world and start to look at movement skills, tactics, and head game, head game for falling, but also like head game for managing sense stress, you know, and all of the things that come into that. And so in that kind of instance, you know, maybe the training plan is a couple of low hanging fruit strength things that we want to work on a lot of skills relative to their outdoor goals and, you know, depending on the athlete, if head game is coming into that at all, maybe there's work to be done there. So I think it's like a cool thing to answering the question, like, what is it that you need to work on the most? Um, and having that conversation with the individual athlete, because we have this, you know, but like their experiences and like what they're talking about becomes extremely important. And then also thinking about, and we kind of talked about this on our first interview, um, thinking about longevity in the sport. Um, if, you know, if you really want to excel at the sport and that's going to look like 800 to a thousand climbing days outside, um, you know, what's your relationship like with the sport? What's your relationship with you? Like, you know, how are are you going to, you got to quite like climbing, I think, to do it a thousand days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Imagine someone like that it. spent a thousand days rock climbing outside that didn't really like it. I mean, that'd be... yeah. Yeah, that'd, exactly. That'd be kind of messed up. <clears throat> that would be a bummer. Find a different hobby so, that you like. Yeah. And I think another, another cool way to use this for sure is something that Carly did before going down to El Salto is she put in all of her metrics for after she had done a strength training cycle. And so her repeaters were really low. All those endurance metrics were really low. And it basically said like, oh, you can climb V9 and 12 plus right now. And then she's like, okay, cool. That is like, it's fairly accurate of what, where you're at in that moment in time. Mm. And so then she did this like power endurance and endurance cycle and got all fit and got those numbers up and then put her metrics in right before the trip. And it's like, okay, now you can climb probably, what was it like V8 and 13 plus or something. Yeah. I think, I think, I think it was like V, I think it's like V7 and 13B or C, you know what I mean? Like it, it adjusted to, you know, and I'm obviously on a sport climbing trip. So like it adjusted to current numbers current metrics which was kind of yeah so it's kind of a cool cool uh fitness tester i think in that yeah way. that's cool that's cool i think i'll i'll probably use it for that um at some point mm -hmm. or maybe a couple points throughout this year that's really interesting yeah. mm -hmm. um so people can use it right now right they can go to your website click on the assessment put in all their stuff and what is what are they going to get from that they're going to find out here's where i am here's what my estimated grades would be and yeah. will it be obvious to them like these two factors are a little bit low or need to be worked on or things like that? Is that obvious to them when they fill this out? It won't be. So, yeah. So it's under like we have like a tab that's just like climbing predictor. So you go in and, you know, put all the things in, hit calculate. Um, so there's like a couple of notes at the beginning that's like, you know, we're going to use this to further refine the model. So making sure you're okay with that. And then um, we just have in there that like 
one of us, one of the PD coaches will reach out to you with like, Hey, like based on what we're looking at, you know, these are the number one and number two factors that you would be most benefited by putting your resources towards Mm. whatever that means for you. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's so, that's the way we have it set up now. So yeah, you can go in and go and, you know, test and throw in, throw in your numbers in there and see where, see where you're sitting at the end of your strength or power phase, or maybe you just like got done with this. I might do it again after, after the sport climbing trip, which I'm sure like, <laughs> I'm sure a lot, I'm a lot more fit. I don't know about strength, but it'll just be fun <laughs> to, you know, see, see what it comes out with, but yeah, you can go in and use it and it's just, um, public and open. Cool. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> on that note, very, uh, very just like practical advice here. Any tips for taking the test? What What does that look like? Because I imagine I looked at the list of things and was like, man, if I did all this stuff tomorrow, I would have to take like three rest days before I could train again or something. <laughs> and probably yeah. some of my numbers would be screwed up because I'd be fatigued. So mm-hmm. yeah, do you do it over the course of a few days? And how would you recommend people go about the assessment mm-hmm. if they're collecting all this data for the first time? Sure. Yeah. I'd say at least two sessions. Um, but in general, we're trying to find the max output for these numbers, you know, so everybody's capacity is going to be a little bit different for that. Um, if you go in and you do the first four things and you're like, hot damn, I'm tired, you know, probably a good cue that you should end that session and do the rest later. Um, if that's just where that line is going to be a little bit different for everybody. Um, if you've been training for the last 10 years, you might be able to go in and bang all this out at almost max output um, because your capacity is so high. Um, so letting the, if you're feeling some fatigue, if you're feeling like that power down feeling or some just general fatigue, that'd be a good time to like pause the session and do the rest of it later. Okay. Yeah. And, and there's links to how to do each of them on the the actual like blog that we posted this all on. As well. oh, okay. So you can go in and click the video and make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, but I, I mean, I find it to be, a decent part of your warm up, you know, like do a warm up, go do a couple of the tests, and then go have a nice little session. Okay, you know? nice. Yeah. That as like the first, third, and call it like a little bit of a workout. Uh, Dude, I don't know. I feel slightly different about that when I maxed out my max pull ups uh, <laughs> before this trip. I was like, I feel like now we're gonna go get a burrito. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty fair. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I found the, you know, I, like I said, I started filling in the thing and I found the outdoor days to be, man, like I have no idea, you know, like a, like a totally wild range. Um, I just figured I had a guess at best figured I'd been climbing a hundred, you know, 15 years, maybe 150 days a year on average over that time. So, you know, 2,200, 2,300 days, but more honestly, like I've probably climbed outside somewhere between 2000 and 3000 days. And I really have no clue. Um, I feel like for people that have been climbing a long time, that's a really tough one to, to pin down. Does it matter if you're super accurate? I mean, it does show the most importance on how hard you're going to climb from that data set. Um, but it also, you know, it also is a, it is a big range. You know, the, the variable doesn't go from zero to one and 0.6 versus 0.7 is going to be huge, you know, like 600 to 700. It's like, you know, you'll, you'll be in the ballpark, right? Like that might be 13, you know, climb 513.2 versus 513.35 or something. Right. <laughs> and you're probably like, okay, yeah, it's 13 minus, right? Like 
that's that's in the range. Um, but it was funny. Yeah, I think both Carly and I, when we started doing this, we overestimated our numbers pretty seriously as well. You know, mm. and, I well, back and I was like, oh, let me go look at my pitches on Mountain Project and how many days have I actually gotten out and did I actually climb three days a week in that season? And, you know, so uh, you do your best. But I, I think that it's still going to be, you know, going to put you in the ballpark mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, if you get in the ballpark of like 100 days, I think that would that, that'd be, you know, great. But yeah, it's tough because like I went like, what are we climbing? Like I went climbing for the very first time in like 2008 or 2009. You know what I mean? And we're just like, don't, you know, it's yeah. like a lot. Yeah, to, what did my climbing <laughs> look like back then? I don't really know. That's a really yeah, good point. I mean, I'm sure I didn't put in 150 days my first handful of years because I was in college and the weather was always bad. So I was climbing yeah. in the gym a lot, but yeah, not us. That's mm-hmm. a good point. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy too looking at, I looked at a couple of the people and uh, there was one entry from someone who climbed V15 for this data set. And okay. uh, the number of days that it said that they climbed outside was the equivalent as climbing every other day for 15 years. Okay. And you're like, oh, well, let's let's talk about becoming a master in something Yeah. how long it takes building those skills outside to do that. And you're like, whoa, okay, am I going to actually climb like three to four days a week for 15 years consistently without getting injured, staying psyched on the sport, you know, doing the proper things to rest X, Y, and Z. And when you, I think when you put it in terms of that and you're like, okay, what, what do I really need to do with my training to be able to make sure that I can c- continue to have that longevity in climbing? Mm, that's um, a good point. Yeah. I thought that was like a good, like, okay, well, this is kind of like the cap, you know, <laughs> from the data set is this person who's like, you know, been pretty yeah. serious about it in that way. You know, the other thing that's, think you know, just like in the not getting injured conversation and talking about strength training and, you know, like our metrics of success in here are climbing harder grades, um, which, you know, is you can't do if you're injured. But, you know, what we're not necessarily encapsulating is the strength training maybe that happens that helps prevent injury. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of validity there. Um, and we're obviously looking at numbers to grades. Um, and so making sure that we're, you know, again, not, we're not poo-pooing on, on strength training or these things. Um, we're just trying to make sure that it's balanced well with outdoor climbing and, um, I mean, yeah, strength training is really, really helpful for injury prevention, especially when you start to do harder grades and the crazy positions that, that we find ourselves in. So, um, yeah. Yeah. We just did our best with to encapsulate what we can for performance, but making sure that like staying on ginger, it has to be, has to be in that, in that priority too. Totally. Gotcha. Okay. If you guys could wave a magic wand and assess any characteristic of, of climbing and quantify it and add it to like the perfect ideal multivariate statistical analysis point, you know, 2.0, whatever that looks like. What things would you love to be able to measure? Wow, that's a good question. My first thought was happiness. Huh. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> are you begrudgingly, do you do you have a healthy relationship with the sport? You know, I'd be really curious about that because I saw this, uh, I can't remember who posted it. I think it was uh, Nathaniel's girlfriend, Jane, posted this thing that was like two columns. One of it was like, you love your sport. And one of it was, do you have a toxic relationship with your sport? And the toxic relationship was like, do you feel like you have to go do it all the time? Do you train when you know you should rest? Do you feel like other people expect you to do it? Like all these things. And then the other one was like, do you generally do it for fun? Is it easy to take breaks when you need to like X, Y, and Z? And I looked at that and I was like, oh man, I have a toxic relationship with climbing. Mm. (laughs) 
I need to work on that. And I would love to know if the people with the toxic relationships end up finding success versus the people who don't have a toxic relationship. Oh, that's a great answer. Yeah, yeah that's but, awesome. That would be my thing. <laughs> I care more about the like, oh, does weight matter? And do you love it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, yeah. <clears throat> no, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Carly, do you have one that came to mind? Um, I would love to like, uh, yeah, like you feel stoked on your community. Do you have like consistent partners that you feel like you're close to? Mm, oh, yeah. I wonder how, um, you know, and thinking about, you know, my own journey through that and some of the times that I'm happiest and is like pretty, is pretty, it depends a lot on the people that I'm with and who I'm, you know, even down to training sessions. I had training sessions this, like this fall with like rad girlfriend of mine and we were psyched, you know, we were in there and we were like, you know, and so, uh, yeah, just like some amount of like, what's that partnership or that community feeling like for you, looking like for you. Um, and the other thing I think that would be really interesting to put in there, like max onset grade, like from the, from the, like, you know, I think that would be uh, a good one that would maybe encapsulate like how fast you're figuring stuff out because mm -hmm. right, right, we have the like, okay, my max grade is 512D, but did you get it second go? Were you a climber that's like, not that really into projecting, but you've sent like 40 512D second go, or are you pretty into enjoying projecting and you spent two months on a 512D, you know, maybe adding a max onsite grade to be like, tessel that out a little bit. Um, or maybe there's something there. I don't know. Mm. And also, I think if I was Mikey Schaefer, I'd want to know, like, how many projects have you had? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I would go for. Uh, um, nice. nice. That'll be, yeah. We'll have, to, we'll have to follow up with him on that. You can do, maybe maybe you can do on the show, Steven. Does he still climb? What's he doing? Seems like he's yeah. just, he just skis now. Yeah, uh, he is definitely still a very active human being. <laughs> he definitely outpaces me consistently. Um, but he has been building some houses, like he's been renovating some houses in Reno, uh, which is, you know, a lot of manual labor. It takes a lot of effort. Um, and he's still going on going on expeditions and shooting films. Um, he like went to went to Greenland for uh, like five weeks this summer to go do one of those Nat Geo films. So he's still still doing his art, still traveling a bunch, uh, and then having like, you know, brief, brief relationships with climbing where it'd be like, okay, I have a month and then goes and top rope solos, you know, some 13 C or 13 D up at Donner until he can like find a partner and send it, you know, <laughs> he still is, still is getting out. Um, but yeah, he's been cool. He's actually helped me a lot with my toxic relationship with climbing, I think, in terms of being like, oh, dude, it's ski season. Go skiing. Let's mm. do it. You know, you don't need to train every day. That's fine. Like, find some other hobbies. Be more well-rounded outside of just the rock climbing sphere. And then, yeah, get back into it. You're going to be plenty strong. You mm. know, that's like the the old man strength coming coming back in. Not that, not that he's old, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, your strength sticks around, right? It's okay to right. go skiing for three months when there's 500 inches of snow in, in the Sierras. Did you actually do that this winter? Did you take his advice? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think I have like, man, I've skied like 25 or 30 days of uh, like backcountry stuff. A lot of it with Mikey done some cool, like we skied Mount Tom, which was awesome. Got to do some cool, like more peak skiing and 
yeah, taking taking a good break and climbing for some tendonitis and finger mm. and like things, uh, as well as my masters. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's why I'm here. <laughs> right, like, that's also, hard. Also, yeah, also that. Also, you're defending yeah. your thesis like in a couple months. Yeah, <laughs> so it's okay yeah. to take a break from training when you're finishing your masters. I guess. I know you want to do it all, though. You definitely want to do it all. Which sometimes being like that productive is way easier than be productive in like so many other realms too. You know, like. If you have all day to train, you know, it's the only thing you do that day and it takes forever. But if you only have two hours, you're like, boom, let's go. Yeah, no, that that is an interesting thing. I um I was actually just in the gym before we started recording and I saw this guy. I've seen him in there every single day that I've been in there training. And uh, today he was in there, but he was studying. You know, he had all his books and his laptop and it was clear that he was a student and doing something. And I was like, I was, you know, my first thought was like, damn, that's impressive that he's training this much and in school. But then I thought like, I feel like all the most productive chapters of my life, I've kind of been doing everything like cranked up to 10, you know, like all the dials are turned up. I'm like working hard at school and that's keeping me really focused and driven. And then I'm training a lot and then I'm doing this and doing this and doing this. Um, yeah, I don't think that's ideal necessarily, but it is interesting how how uh, mom- there's like a lot of momentum I think that comes with discipline mm-hmm. and hard work and things like that. And and I, I see that a lot. Like you, most of the strong climbers I talk to on here or meet, they're not just like a one trick pony, you know, they're usually like kicking ass at a bunch of different things in their lives and like working hard at their career or building mm-hmm. a business or, you know, they're really good at like some art that they do or something else. There's usually multiple things going on. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. There's some great role models out there for that. Like I know you've interviewed uh sj and she's a great great role model of that yeah. like oh you know i'm gonna be a surgeon and then like we had a day up at starwall this summer where i showed up showed up to the crag and mikey was blaming her on her you know 514 project and she seemed like a little out of sorts but was giving it up there and then came down and looked just like tired and i was like oh what's going on she's like well I had this really hard hand surgery that I had to study for for like four or five days and then open this person's hand up. And if I mess up, they may lose like mobility of their fingers or use of their fingers. And I just really needed to come, you know, decompress. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> decompressing for you is like failing on your 514 project three times in a row and then going home. Like you must love climbing. Uh, that's right. amazing. She, she hasn't um, changed then. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Sean Jean Lee for people that... uh that haven't listened to that episode, SJ, episode ten, maybe somewhere around that. One of the early, really ones. early ones. Yeah, it was it was really yeah. fun. We were we were in uh, we were in Bishop, California, in the parking lot of the Black Sheep. I've recorded a lot of podcasts in parking lots, but yeah, that one was actually <laughs> in person with SJ, and it was super fun. We had a great time. So nice, yeah. Parking lot podcast would have been like another fun name. Oh, that's a good name. Nugget that's is, a really good name. Parking lot podcast just also rolls off the tongue. It does. <laughs> Damn it. Missed opportunity. Yeah. Maybe <clears> I'll <throat> do a spin-off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, you guys can take it and start a start your own <laughs> podcast. Um, anything else? Anything that you want to talk about or that feels important that we haven't touched on yet? Oh gosh. I don't know. Anything. I guess, yeah, just um just make making sure that your relationship with the sport is is good enough and enjoyable enough that you want to go climb a thousand days outside. I think it would be, you know, something that I would say statistically speaking matters. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. 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 And I would encourage anyone to also like do their own 
deep dive into this if you're you know in a stats class or anything cool like that it was it was like half the fun was the journey and figuring this stuff out and and trying to understand what it means and i'd be really curious to hear other people's take on on even like the same the same data set here as well uh, and, and everyone can get it right it's it's public via yeah, power uh, company i believe so yeah yeah i think it's one of those like email them and they'll they'll shoot you out if you're if you're terribly interested they didn't just like post it just to post it okay you know? got it they were like if you care and you wanted to like really look into it then then we'll we'll send it your way um but yeah yeah and hopefully we'll keep just updating this if we you know, get a bunch of people to go put put their metrics in, and we get a thousand, two thousand people. I think that would be really, really cool to then, uh, you know, revisit this and see if anything's changed. I'd love it. Let's do it. You're you're officially invited. If you do that, obviously, you know, share it in your own way. That'll be fun. But you're always you're you're both welcome back on the podcast anytime. That'd be really fun. See what we Thanks. learned. Rad. Great to see yeah. you, Carly, and nice to meet you, Casey. You too, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. It was fun. Yeah. We'll yeah. talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks for everybody who tuned in today. Hope you learned something interesting. And I will link to all of the things Project Direct, Project Direct Coaching in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. I'll link to the calculator where you can figure out how hard you might climb and what might be holding you back. And I'll link to their blog where you can read more about this stuff if you want to geek out on it. And until next time, thanks again for listening. That's a wrap. Thanks, everyone. Hey, friends, just a quick reminder before you go. If you enjoyed that episode, if you want to hear us talk for 20 more minutes, we did a short add-on episode a couple months after recording this first interview. Carly and Casey had a chance to sit down with a professional statistician and learn even more about the data. And they got a couple really cool insights that we didn't share in the first part so if you want to hear that that is available for patrons who support the show for five dollars per month or more i just tacked it onto the end of the episode after the finishing music so you can go listen to that there if you want to check it out you can find all things patreon at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing and learn about all my different tiers thank you to my sponsors for this episode you can find links to their websites and their discount codes right there in your podcast app if you scroll down or by going to thenuggetclimbing.com and finding the show notes for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Greetings from Switzerland. This guy's still hammering the fence. Okay, I'm going to sign off here. I hope you have an amazing week wherever you are tuning in from, and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>